Hello and welcome to episode number 218 of the Armin Show podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and the website. Here on this episode, we have author, professor, David Hu of Georgia Institute of Technology. He studies biolocomotion and has a book called How to Walk on Water and Climb Up Walls. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Armin. This is wonderful. Now... I like your book for multiple reasons because it gets to the base of what is movement, things we don't even look at that normally happen in our bodies, that ants do as they walk by, animals, how do they move, how does a snake move, what is the base for how you started looking at that, why were you curious whereas other people were not? Well, I first studied... um uh, you know, I, in college, I was really interested in, in fluid mechanics and mm-hmm. like the motion of fluids. And um, there's nothing that uses fluids better than animals. I mean, we have airplanes and boats, um, but there are a lot of non-moving parts in those things. Whereas animals, they always have these, you know, flapping wings, flipping fins, um, and they have just a lot of sort of more degrees of freedom, more like ways they can move the fluid, and so. For me, as someone who's really interested in like fluid flows, animals are the best way to sort of, um, you know, get inspiration. That makes sense. I saw that you described it as bio inspiration, and this is a way that we will bridge the gap between the way we move and that future robots move, which is a theme of the book. What are what is one of the most um, difficult things that you have seen that we or some animal does? that uh, it would be difficult to implement in a robot as of yet? Well, there's lots, but um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the most recent ones that we've been studying is um, elephant trunks. Um, for example, an elephant, you know, it weighs 5,000 kilograms. He's got to eat about 200 kilograms of food a day. Um, that boils down to basically like 100 grams every minute or two bananas every single minute. Um, that's not just to grow. That's just to sort of get enough food to survive. They got to get those 200 grams, of, 200 kilograms of food in there. Mm-hmm. And um, all that food's got to be picked up from the ground or from a tree with this long, flexible trunk. Um, and, you know, they've got to be prepared to pick up really light things like seeds or, you know, um, fleshy fruits. Um, they've also got to be able to uproot trees to get the roots or turn over logs. So that elephant trunk can pick up really, really light things and really heavy things and can do both equally well. And there's been this movement in, in engineering called soft robotics. They've tried to build, you know, I think you've seen the robots in the car factories that have sort of sequences of like, uh, like moving segments, mm-hmm. but not many that have like that are made of soft things like an elephant trunk um, but there's a lot of interest in doing that because one day for robots to basically you know comb your hair or brush your teeth or deal with humans they've got to be able to um, do things gently this is true I noticed that in the Tesla factory for example the videos they put out everything is it's wonderful because they're doing movements that people would do before but they're all uh, more harsh jerky I guess they're not things that uh, we do the soft little light movements. They would damage things if they were really small and delicate. 
So the only way to bridge that gap is to match what we do in robot form to make things uh, movable in a soft form. That's a thing that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of people trying to build elephant trunk inspired robots like these, you know, devices that that kind of long, flexible like arms. Um, but the problem is getting something that's both sort of they can sense and they can also um, apply large forces. That's that's not easy. Right. It seems like we are mimicking all the elements as much as possible because uh, our cells have small little sensors in them. Uh, the robots we make, they don't have as many. They have a few here and there. So we're just trying to match what we do almost in some ways or most ways. Yes. Now, I mean, animals have this thing called hierarchy, like basically like your fingertip. You can sense like smallest, like little, you know, grain of dust because you've got these tiny little sensors under your skin. But at the same time, you've got these large biceps that can also sense things too. So you've got sensors that can sense really light things and really heavy things all in the same thing. And we have still yet to implement <clears throat> those things in a in a really heavy moving arm like that. Like imagine that you mentioned that car factory. If that robot could, you know, comb your hair or basically like brush your teeth, it would have to have basically enough force, but also really gentle, really fine-tuned sensors. Right. That is true. Now, I noticed a lot of what you have done, research on and discussed in the book, is related to small insects, bugs, ants, and their movement, which, why are they a focus more so than like a zebra? Is there more uh, value gained from the smallest that we have in the animal world? But also elements are actually huge. But is there a a certain value gained from the smallest insects and animals? <clears throat> right. Um, well, if you imagine you take up all the animals in the world, mm -hmm. from like an ant all the way up to an elephant, you line them up. Mm -hmm. um, do you know where the average, like where the midpoint would be, like where the center, like the middle, like what's the median size of all the animals? Mm. What do you? I would think that it would be uh, really on the small side, so maybe a rat. Yeah, Actually, it, yeah, somewhere around there. It turns to be around about a quarter, like the size of like a, an American quarter. Whoa. That's median. So and it's because there's basically like a million, like there's <laughs> millions out there, and there's and most of those are actually insects. Um, mm -hmm. And um, in, I mean, mammals have. I think we have a lot in common with them because we're mammals too. But mm -hmm. in terms of super materials. Um, like basically super strong, super flexible materials in terms of evolutionary time. The insects uh, really have all these other animals. Be they've just been around for super long periods of time. And then they can basically accomplish these feats. Like, And a lot of it has to do with them staying small. Um, in the book, I talk about how these, when bees go forage for pollen, they're in a rush because they have to get as much pollen as possible before winter. And so they get into about 700,000 collisions in their lifetime <clears throat> as they basically run around. Huh. That means that they're kind of not really avoiding hitting things. Uh, because they're in such a rush, they have to basically just run into things all the time. And that wouldn't be possible on our scale. Like if I, if I was – I was just on the <laughs> a few minutes ago. But if I was basically trying to – if I have gotten to like 100 collisions on my way back, there's no way I could come back alive. But that's what a, that's basically the pattern that the bees decided to do because on that scale, it makes sense. And on that scale, um, the bees can survive the collisions. They have these 
they have these super materials like I talk about in the book, Resolin. This material that's basically much more efficient than you know our Achilles tendon in storing and releasing energy. And so instead of basically damaging the body, it sort of just bounces off things um, as it as it collides. Um, and on the um, engineering side, um, I mean there are a lot of big machines to build cars and things like that. But with the shrinking electronics industry and the interest in making you know, surveillance um, devices. A lot of robots these days are going to be small. They're not going to be, you know, bigger than your car. They're going to, they're not going to be like transformer size. They're going to be more like things that, you know, you can fit into palm of your hand, put in your pocket, throw out into the wind, and um, something like the size of an insect. Um, it, they call it the sort of um, micro robotics industry. Hmm. That makes sense. I can just picture like some years from now. Uh, some kids in school just throwing their like pet fly, I guess, and then sending it out, and then it comes back or something. That's kind of funny. Yeah, that's how they do the Snapchat. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's the next level of augmented reality in a way. Now, one thing you had mentioned in the book was, um, I like this part because you can't just look at the organism. You have to look at the interaction of body movement and the material properties to find out... Uh, how an organism gets its speed and fuel economy. I thought that was interesting because uh, you have to examine the organism as it's moving or slithering through the dirt or flying because if you look at it just as it is, um, the physics properties don't really show up. I found that to be quite interesting. Yeah, when we, I mean, when you buy a car, you kind of look at the outside, you mm-hmm. know, the paint and the shape. Um, and maybe I'll open the motor, but the weird thing about animals is because they've been evolving for so long. I mean, these cars have been only been designed for 50 years, mm-hmm. maybe. But these animals, they can, they get, they're sort of have evolution going on all the way down to the material, like the cellular, the molecular level. So, I mean, they can, uh, I talk about in the book how about one of the fastest organisms in the ocean are these mako sharks. Mm-hmm. That, that and part of the reason they're so fast is because of their skin. Um, if you've ever touched a shark, they um, they have skin that's rough. I mean, the the um, uh, high Hawaiian people they used to use this skin as um as sandpaper to you know sand down their boats and things. And hmm. it's rough, but it's not just like sand. It turns out it's got tiny little golf club like sized um, you know elements sticking out of the skin. And those are actually important in adjusting the flow of water as it flows past the shark. And it confused people for a long period of time because for years, I mean, the Russians in the U.S. had been trying to figure out why sharks move so quickly. And they'd been dragging these sharks through water and they couldn't figure out anything. (laughs) Turns out it only was – you only get the drag reduction. You only get this extra boost if you have your shark flipping its fins. So – the um, those little golf clubs on the skin they only interact with the water in an advantageous way when the shark is basically s- sort of bending its body, and interaction with the vortices generated by the bending with those um, small filaments on the skin it's the two of those together that give you the drag reduction, and um, and uh, that's something we still have to desi- design so basically things that that basically implant all the way from the speed of the body down to the curvature of the body down to the you know the size of the little uh, you know elements on the skin 
Um, and that's something that why, that's partly why sharks are so fast. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's a fluid motion, but you can only look at it in the context of while it's moving. One thing that that reminded me of was the snakes that the when they move, they are pushing off the ground, obviously based on their friction, but then they lift up part of their body during the movement so that it's reduced friction as much as possible uh, during their movement. You wouldn't be able to see that unless you did a really close motion camera that caught a lot of frames per second. One thing that came to mind was, um, is the is is the camera frames per second speed one of the key elements that has allowed seeing more detail than the past? Is there other things that have also caused that in recent years? Yeah, the um, I mean, animal motion. People have been studying thinking about animal movies since the cave paintings when they were painting, you know, deer and buffalo on walls, mm-hmm. and um, it really made started making progress when the there's a high speed camera that was invented based on a bet between these two people trying to decide if horses leave the ground when they gallop or not. <laughs> um, and since then, we have electronics basically the computer industry fueling really even higher speed and higher resolution regular cameras that can film you know the outside animals x-ray cameras that can film you know the bones of animals as they're moving and um and even technologies like 3d printing that can you know take take the the body parts like i mentioned these shark scales that look like golf clubs and replicate them um, not only you know the size they can fit in your hand, but all the way down at scale, like with basically mimicking exactly what the shark scale looks like, and putting these on sort of flexible surfaces. So it's basically these like imaging technologies which are now getting really fast. I mean, a lot of animal motion we can't see with our eyes. It's only because we can walk, you know turn on the TV and see these like images of like flies flapping their wings. Mm-hmm. Um, so imaging technologies and basically manufacturing technologies that are allowing us to print soft things, print things that have, you know, not just cubes or rectangles, but things that look like the shapes of these structures on animals, which has a huge, huge variety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed that the flies, when you uh, talked about that in the book, they have to, they adjust mid-stroke or mid-flow uh, of their wing uh, many times a second, so that's kind of a cool feature that they can do that we we can't even see, but they're doing every millisecond or so. It's a very short time frame. Uh, one thing that came to mind was the how nature has a lot of things that are low, maybe low efficiency, but they're low maintenance, like eyelashes. I never thought about it that way, that they uh, filter air and the way they're curved, there's an optimum amount of filtering and keeping from evaporation. Uh, will that be used in some elements? Will they attach eyelash type things to things that we build to keep things from evaporating? So yeah, the eyelashes are a good example of, you're right, it's it's letting a lot of particles through, but the nice thing, it doesn't take any energy and they're easy to clean. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, we think they can be used basically, these days there's more and more camera sensors put on every device mm-hmm. um, so if you want to have less accumulation um, and you can't have s- some send someone over there to clean them like if you're on the, on Mars or on somewhere that you're not going to get too much human intervention then it could help um, I mean these days um, for example solar panels get 
um, need to be cleaned every two months because they lose about maybe more than 20% of their their um, the solar power they generate just because dust accumulates on them. Right. And uh, uh, we're thinking of putting small hairy filaments on sort of collect big panels like solar panels and cameras and see if that um, can reduce the cost of cleaning them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. We We attach what we have to what is applicable. One thing that came to mind is uh, usually when I am looking at things, my topics that I look at is uh, human behavior or decision making or things like that. And like the basis of those, I, I saw you recently uh, reposted a tweet that said if uh, oxytocin is sprayed in the nose, it affects how people view fairness or something. And so it impacts our decision making. So biology is the underlying method and then physics is underneath that. Well, uh, what, what caused you to focus on the biological layer with some engineering as opposed to uh, maybe the cognition layer or even a lower layer like astrophysics or something? Um, I like I like doing experiments with my hands and with things that I can see. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think there's, I mean, physics and things like that, they were interested in that 200 years ago. And um, there's mm-hmm. been a lot more interest in basically microscopic things and also like things that a cosmological distance because of increasing technology. Um, but, um, you know, there's still a lot of unknown thing, like basically the physics that governs, you know, the size of things that we can see. That's really, there's still a lot of interesting things there to be found. I think with the recent advent robotics, there's a lot of motivation and need to study, you know, stuff that we can touch with our hands because that's the scale that robots are going to be uh, doing dealing with. Mm-hmm. Actually, speaking of robots, one thing that came to mind, uh, I noticed one of your most, uh, some of your most cited papers are related to the water striders that can run on water using the surface tension. Uh, is there any recent developments, I guess, in robotics related to those miniature striders that walk on water? Um, there's, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the flexibility of their legs, so... Um, to walk on water, I mean, they we showed that you have to have legs of a certain length, mm-hmm. and that um, they've got to be hydrophobic. But it turns out for them to do these things like jumping, um, they can also jump like they can basically jump to ten times their body height. Wow, um, that's like Michael Jordan leaping <laughs> to like a, a six-story building, um, and mm-hmm. they can do that from the water surface without the water surface breaking. Wow. And, and that's really pushing the envelope of how much the legs can tolerate before they'll penetrate the surface. Um, oh. And so there's these uh, colleagues at um, Seoul National University in Harvard who've been working on these really flexible-legged robots um, that can basically have a lot more, you know, robustness on the water surface without penetrating it. Penetrating it. Huh. That's pretty cool. It's nice to look at the uh, the movements. What's the limits of what we can work with for small things? One thing, uh, as far as small things go, making a little tear at the top of a piece of paper, helping to uh, cause it to rip, and then seeing that a worm, I believe, in the sand uses the same method of a small tear in the sand that is firm to basically rip it through the ground as it goes through. It's neat to find analogs of things that we do that we maybe figured out and thought, oh, this is pretty cool, but that's the whole life of a certain animal. I think that's neat. Yeah, they're really creative. I think. Mm-hmm. I, they really exploit 
the physics of their environment to do things when they don't have very much. Like you said, worms, I mean, their bodies are soft. They don't have any bones. But somehow, got to be able to, you know, get uh, from one underground place to another. And so they take advantage of this ability to rip rip materials. Um, right. Now, one thing I noticed was uh, there's the Nobel Prize and then there's the Ig Nobel Prize, which you have received for your work. And I looked it up and it says it makes... The point of the Ig Nobel Prize is something that makes people laugh and then think. Um, did you like getting the prize? And then do you also have a? Is that generally your framework where you like to maybe cause some, bring some entertainment? I've done that in a little bit in comedy. And then after that, it, the idea is to cause thought from the listener. You know, when you study nature, I, I think you've got to have a sense of humor because things always turn out to be different than you than you expect and um they often have these just really sort of impossible problems that are just i think just really turn out we we just end up laughing so (laughs) when we laugh it's partly because we see something that's like just ridiculous but also amazing at the same time and there's no other kind of like way to respond to it um like we're studying this we're working on this um animal that uh, is territorial and needs to leave signals for its other for other animals. It's called a wombat, hmm. and uh, for it to do it, it just got it, it. It's basically best strategy is to communicate through its poop, <laughs> and uh, so it is best by laying its poop on top of logs and stumps. I mean, it's not a very good climber, so it tries to get as climb it how tall as it can and lay these poop. And the problem is the poop's going to roll off the stump. So what it's evolved is ability to make cubic feces, feces that kind of looks like dice. Um, hmm. And uh, when you see, I mean, every time I, I pick one of these things up, I just it's just a, it's just a, it looks like a like a cell phone charger or something. I mean, it's really and but and that's what evolution came up with. And um, mm-hmm. I think when people laugh, there's at least some chance they might remember. And I think getting people to remember is like a big step forward to um, getting science to be more popular. Oh, that's a great point. Right, there's an emotional link there. That's true. Um, speaking of science, what are, uh, you're in biolocomotion and or mechanical engineering. Are there any related fields of science or scientists that you uh, commonly work with to do what you do that are not uh, exactly what you do? Sure. Um, well, even... Uh, so my PhD is in mathematics, mm-hmm. um, um, but I work in a mechanical engineering department, so I talk to... Mm, I talk to people who do computer models, so they don't have elephants in their lab. They just have they have computers and they do these mo- simulations of these very complicated flows. For example, if flows past these eyelashes, mm-hmm. um, and calculate. Um, um, we also work with um, a lot of people that are really professionals with the animals. Um, oh. What can we do with the, um, every time we work with elephants? We have to have at least two zookeepers there because at any moment the elephant. If it really wants to get pissed off, it can just <laughs> throw us across the room and just kill us instantly. Someone's got to be make sure to 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 call the police. Right. Same with snakes. Anytime we work with snakes, you have to have two people in the room because a lot of snakes we work with don't have um, any antidotes, so they're venom but don't have antidotes. So oh. if one person is killed by that snake, that person just done. The other person has to make sure shut the door so the snake doesn't get out. Oh. Huh. That's an interesting pairing right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to manage the animals as they are there because they are still animals there. They don't They don't know what the research is. They're just there. That's kind of funny. 
Um, one thing I wanted to uh, nearly conclude on is that you had put a quote that said, doing what's important to you is a part of keeping a balance, which is necessary for running the 10-year marathon. Uh, it was a recent post, and I think I believe in that heavily, that if you don't do what you like, you just won't have the energy to do all the other things. What are a couple of the, the things that you uh, are important to you or you, you like, that you like to have in your regular doing? Um, I like to spend a lot time as I like to spend a lot of time with kids. Um, I have two kids, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and mm-hmm. um, I like I like well. Sometimes I like kids. I mean, they they can be annoying, but <laughs> I mean, they do ask a lot of interesting questions, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's nice. I think it's nice to get a fresh perspective from them. Um, like I, I'll take the kids to the zoo, and they'll ask all these questions about how they how animals do things. Um, so. Yeah, I like to basically try out my research on sort of a younger audience um, before I go to the to the PhDs. So I like to show them some things and things like that. Um, oh, that's quite cool. That makes sense. I'm sure they like it the most because it's they like animals, and then they're seeing you connected to animals and your research. That's nice. They must like that. That's cool. Um, the element that I like to conclude on, I always like to check. Uh, what are some of your upcoming? Uh, goals for the rest of 2019 obviously your book has uh, come out in recent uh, times and what is upcoming for you um, we are writing up this um, paper on the cubic feces mm-hmm. uh, how these animals um, produce these things and I have a freezer that has um, intestine <laughs> of a wombat that was shipped from Australia from about for about $2,000 Wow. That's about the cost to insure and ship um, these intestines. <laughs> and, um, we've got one intestine that we've sort of cut open. Um, you know, it's got cubic feet. I mean, I cut it open, and then it's got cubic feces in it, just like a little Christmas present. <laughs> and the other one is waiting. Um, I think uh, for two thousand uh, for two thousand twenty, we want to leave a little bit there in case we need to do some more tests. But we're we're basically pulling and stretching these things, and we're trying to build like a little system that mimics this um imagine kind of like a cake pan except not a cake pan that's not solid but that's kind of made of elastic material mm-hmm. so something that you put in that's soft but then when you put put a uh, f- sort of cake batter in it it turns it into uh corners you create like cubic shapes so we've uh-huh. been playing a lot with pantyhose and um stitching pantyhose in different shapes and seeing if that can basically um you know what the wombats have they have layer they have little stripes on their intestine that make it double in stiffness and so we've been playing these sort of pantyhose i mean i haven't put them on my body or anything but (laughs) right cool to to get this thing to work right that's kind of like uh you in the book you talked about you used a a strand from uh athletic socks because of their ability to um hug tightly but not break that's nice creative uses of whatever we have to implement in that's a great thing about engineering especially on this scale i mean a lot of like a lot of the materials that we have we kind of take them for granted but they were actually due to years and years of honing and refining and they can do some pretty um they can really support a lot of forces and, and hold a lot of energy um yeah pantyhose is pretty good <laughs> sheer um nude that's the kind we like oh okay <laughs> that's what's it. that works that works for the the usage that is wonderful well 
Uh, I would like to mention I am glad to have had you on the show. I very much like um, it's 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 very specific. It is current. Um, you are always checking things like an engineer would, trying this for this, this for this. It's a nice feature of activity that I'm very inclined towards. So I like that, and uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Armin. Thanks for reading the book so carefully, and um, it's great to talk to you. Wonderful. And we are out.